Welcome to the Specify Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Tas Nakagawa of Castagra Products. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and construction industry. Today's guest is Ben Bensal. He's the author of Built to Innovate and the former Dean of INSEAD. So Ben, thank you, thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Tats. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I really enjoyed your uh, book, Built to Innovate. I thought it was very well laid out and easy to understand. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy you had a chance to, to look at it and uh, that you enjoyed it. And we can go into a, a deeper conversation about it this way. Thank you. Absolutely. I think one of the early points that you brought up was the difference between innovation and innovating. Can you tell me about that? Oh, yes. That was that was a very interesting experience for me when I came across this, this idea here. I've been teaching and training and consulting with people on innovation for quite a bit of time now. It's about 20 years. And I kind of remember that when I I used to walk into a group and start to talk about innovation, okay, let's learn about innovation. I felt in the room some sort of a tension. I discovered that the word, the very word innovation is quite intimidating for people. And I was really curious about uh, why was this the case? And I realized that unconsciously people, when they go to a training on innovation, they make this assumption that when when they come back, their boss is going to expect them to come up with a a new product or a new technology or disruptive business model. But they really think that after the training, they should come out with an outcome, a physical outcome. And one day by accident, instead of using innovation, I said, okay, let's learn how to innovate or let's learn how to become more innovative. And I kind of sensed that the tension, this this, uh, anxiety in the room would start to kind of fade away. And immediately it came to me that when you use the verb to innovate or the adjective to be innovative, people understand that this this is about a process. This is about activities and actions that you can learn how to do, things that you can use tools to support you, and the anxiety was gone. So this is why I like to speak about innovation and um, make a distinction with to innovate or innovating. The other thing also that I can say, for me now, I see that if you think about the iceberg metaphor, innovation is the tip of the iceberg is what is visible. And this is actually what you see in organization is the result, what you came up with. But innovating is all what is underneath the water level, is what I call the collective innovating capabilities of an organization. And I mean, since you're asking about the book, the book is fundamentally about how to build this collective innovating capability that lies under the water level. Yeah, no, this is very good. And then I ran across a very interesting concept, which made a lot of sense for me, was your idea around the execution engine, innovation engine, and how you'd have to simultaneously sort of navigate the two and, you know, resisting the urge to separate those two. 
Absolutely. I've been working, as I said, for quite a bit of time, and I noticed the two things. One is that people think that you need to be a genius leader or, or a startup to innovate. Or the other one is that people think that innovation is, is about a product or technology, something fantastical. Well, that's not true. As a matter of fact, I, uh, in the research and the work I've done, many established companies, uh, even century-old companies, able to innovate. And how do they do this? They're not looking for industry changing big effects, but for small, important uh, changes in unexpected places. And how do they do this? They do this with continuous innovation, systematic innovation, innovation of, of all kinds and you know, driven by everyone in the organization. So what I'm talking about is really creating on top of your execution engine, which you know a lot of firms have already established, and that's the dominant activity in any kind of business activity is the execution, but that you should you should kind of formally create an innovating engine. This is this is a, a place within the organization that is that is really concrete, formally organized, and fully legitimized, where when people can switch from the execution mind to the innovating mind, and this is where everyone can innovate, not only your new product development people or your R&D or your scientists, but everyone in the organization, you can innovate in everything you do. It's not only about your products and technology, but it can be in your your services, your, your processes, and even your internal functions. And also innovating becomes a habit. And this is really fundamental. So anybody in the organization can switch between innovating, I mean, execution activity, which usually takes, you know, 90, 95% of people's time, but they also, everybody has space and a place and a time where they can engage into innovating activities. This is about legitimizing that this time, making it formal and that innovating is everybody's job. Yeah, and I, and I saw a chart on there that kind of showed like the uh, characteristics of the execution engine and the innovation engine that I thought was fascinating. What are some key differences, like I think on that chart, what, what are ones that sort of contrast each other quite quite heavily? That's very important. I think that in many organizations, people kind of separate the two engines and they, they make different people responsible for them. So you have many organizations, people believe that innovation is going to come from the senior leaders or from some specialist uh, R&D or or new product development people, and the rest of the organization, they just have to focus on execution. Execution is, is my job, and I'm not the innovator's type kind of response is usually what I get. So no, in this innovating companies that I've been able to observe and research, anyone, everyone is engaged in both engines. So execution fundamentally is about control. The execution engine is about implementing, executing today's strategy. So it is about control. It's a not surprise that many execution engines uh, are hierarchical based on, on, on silos, if you will, uh, vertical silos, which are focused on 
on problem solving, basically, right? So you, you have to develop products and then you have to market the products and then you have to build the products. Innovating is less about control and more about collaboration, delegation, working not in vertical structures, but in horizontal structures, which are focused on, on the customer. So innovating is very much about the customer. It's about cross-disciplinary teams. I can give an example, for instance, of one of the companies that is featured. It's a Turkish company called Korza. They are, they are a supplier. They manufacture fabric that is used to reinforce tires. And they used to be a uh, commodity supplier. I mean, this is something that is, uh, the technology is quite well known. The product is quite well known. And they're just, they used to be just one of many, many suppliers competing solely on price for this. And so, I mean, I, I, can, I can explain later if needed. The, the CEO transformed the organization, created a, a fantastic innovation engine. And, and what they have is that now, they have these horizontal teams, cross-disciplinary teams, which they send to their customers. So their B2B, their customers are tire manufacturers. So on a regular basis, they send this, uh, these teams where you could have uh, uh, engineers from, uh, from you know, the, the plants, from the R&D, together with marketing people, HR people, people from the legal department, logistics. And these people they go to their customers' plants and they literally camp. I've seen pictures of tents that they put into their customers' facilities. And they stay there three, four days at a time, just roaming around and talking to people, trying to understand what their customers are doing. And they were telling me at, at a plant, the team kind of noticed that the the customer, I mean, the, the employees of the customer were having trouble handling some roll of fabric that was delivered to them on trucks. And immediately the team understood that they were peeking into a problem that the customer had never told them about. This is what I call the silence of the customer. This is something that the customers never talked to, to them about. But what they did is that once they went back, they got together with the engineers and they designed a small process, which data they trained their customer uh, into this little process routine to handle, to, down, uh, to upload, to download these rolls of fabric on the trucks. And, and, and they were able to save resources from 30 minutes with three people to 12 minutes with one person. Wow. Again, they were able to transform the company in, from a commodity player to a company that can provide solutions and services to their customers. And they became one of the strategic suppliers uh, that can provide these kind of uh, innovative solutions. And of course, I, I, I don't, I'm not talking about the products. They also deliver the products, but they, they became a very innovative supplier. Uh, and you can see that these are very horizontal structures focused on the customer problem. I call it problem finding. Innovating is not about problem solving, which is the execution's job, but it is about problem finding. How many new problems can we find to help the customers with? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess if you discover the problems, then you, you have a target. Exactly. And you can see, as soon as you say that, the culture is very different. So again, uh, just to more frankly respond to your question, the execution engine is, 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 is what people already know. It's very hierarchical, very structured, focused. You know, uh, the thinking is very convergent. We have to find the optimal solution to a problem. While the uh, innovating engine is, is what we know about innovation. It has to be cross-disciplinary. There's no real boss. It's, uh, it's about discovery, about exploring, about understanding the customer's life. It is usually cross-disciplinary, flat organizations. The culture is not about optimization, it's about maximization, finding as many problems as you can. But the key here, Tats, is that what this is about is, is enlisting everybody in these kind of activities, not just saying only the creative guys can do this, but everybody can learn how to do this. And we can get into how to do this, but... Again, there are some, I have a couple of chapters focused on how do you build this governance structure for this innovation engine to work? And also, if people don't know how to do it, there are processes, there are tools, very simple, intuitive, visual tools that people can use to learn how to find these new ideas. And one of the things that's very relevant to the industries I'm a part of is, you know, the codings side of things. And I was wondering, yes. you you picked BASF as one of your example companies, and you yes. listed all these interesting things that BASF does. What drew you to the company to, to include in your book? Well, this is, you raise a very interesting point about the book that, uh, I mean, it was by design, is that many of the companies in the book are, are not the, your usual suspects, I would say, when it comes to innovation. You know, of course, I talk about, in passing, about Netflix and the tech companies and the entertainment companies. I mean, Marvel is a big case in the book, but the book is really focused on established companies in industries and sectors not necessarily known for innovation. So I was telling you about the tire industry. I have uh, cases on the, on the concrete, concrete industry with ECOSEM, chemical, medical, insurance, insurance industry. So PSF for me was a very interesting case and Bayer, the, the pharmaceutical company, because these are companies that are typically known, I mean, established companies known for their R&D achievements, but they were able to enlist the innovating capabilities of everyone in the organization. And this is what the book is about, is about everyone being contributing to innovation. I mean, there, there are a couple interesting examples about BSF, which is that when you were talking about the, the difference between execution and innovation engine, what they have been able to do is to close the gap. I mean, there are two important gaps that you need to close when you want to create an innovating organization, is to close the gap between your would-be innovators, uh, people who would come up with ideas, and the people who are, are you know, the, the professional innovators. So it's basically closing the gap between your marketing and salespeople and your engineers, R&D people, who are very often in very different cultures and very tight silos, if you will. And the second gap you need to close is the one between your, your, your own organization and the customer. 
And there's a, I, I don't know which one I could start with, but there's this, well, maybe I'll talk about the, 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 the Basotech example for BSF. And I'm going to give you the example, but if you allow me, I'll explain why it was it was revolutionary for BSF and, and why it happened. But this is an interesting example where, as a matter of fact, BSF deals a lot with this uh, foam called Basotect, which is used to, I mean, maybe you, you're already very familiar with it in your industry, which is used to insulate against noise and heat in constructions. So there was this salesperson who was working with, um, it happened to be a Japanese construction company. So they, they were working on a, on a project and um, demonstrating uh, what Basotech could do. And there was an accident and somebody spilled a cup of coffee on, uh, on the table and it spilled over the, the blueprints that were on the, on the table. Everybody panicked, and the, 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 the salesperson just instinctively took a, a piece of, of the foam that was sitting on the table and tried to wipe out the coffee on the on the table. And of course, it uh, it took all the all, all, all the coffee on the table. But at the same time, he kind of noticed that it also erased the ink on on the blueprints. And that was kind of a very surprising one of those serendipitous uh, moment. But the important thing is that once he noticed that, he didn't kind of go back and forget about it and continue on his project. He understood his, he, he had experienced a feature of you know, the product, the foam, that people didn't necessarily know about it. So what he did is that he proactively went to the scientist and try to explain to them what he saw and whether there was could be something interesting for them. And this is how then, you know, the R&D department started to kind of work on this feature of Basotech that nobody knew about. And then they started to look for what could be done with it. After two years, they started to work with PNG and it became a new product line for PNG that Actually, I checked later in my in my in my kitchen. Lots of households have, and it's called magic eraser that people use for dishwashers and all that. This is a multi-million business for PNG even today, and they have different forms of this uh, magic eraser. But what is really interesting and you know a turning point for BSF is why would the salesperson proactively go? And talk to the R&D. This is, this is not the way that R&D works. Usually R&D, they work on a product and then try to push it to the sales to sell it. But this is a result of many years at BSF of the work that a unit called Perspective that they had created where they had a specialized unit of innovation coaches who were teaching and training people in the organization in customer focus and in innovation. So everybody within the organization had gone through this training. And this is, I would say, the result. The result when the salesperson faces a customer, discovers about a new problem or a new you know, potential here and takes it back into the organization, that is the result of this multi-years of training and this uh, very present unit called perspective, which uh, trains people in innovation. Mm, 
Very, very nice. Okay, so there's another company you mentioned, which I love, I always try to learn more about is uh, WL Gore. So why did you include uh, that company? I'm sorry to say this is one of those usual suspects, as you, you, you people like to call them, you know, because uh, the, the, we, we've we've known about Gore and innovation for a very long time. In particular, their notion of uh, providing specific time, double time, they call it, the double time where people, engineers and scientists have 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 or anybody actually in the organization have a protected time where they can work on their own private projects. And then and then many examples of those becoming becoming new product lines. But there was an interesting twist that for me was quite quite revealing beyond the the fact that innovation innovating was set in the uh, in the value and the mission of the company which is something very important by the way they created this new research center where they in a sense they could close the gap between gore and their customers so this is a research center where customers can come are invited to come and present their problems and then Gore has a, a, a wide range of products. You know, it's very difficult to know whether they have a solution for a customer problem or not. So mm-hmm. they invite the customers to their new research center and th- they, they actually have a, an AI application that can help uh, uh, kind of match, you know, find a match if there's one between the problem that the customers can bring and the wide range of products that Gore might have. And uh, the products might be in different places in the organization. And and, and the solution could be a combination of products that uh, WL Gore develops, or it could be a product that they, they need to develop anew. So this is a very interesting example of how you can systematically close the gap between your customers and your uh, would-be innovators is by bringing them in to the same space. And I've seen quite a few organizations do that as well, is to bring the, the, the customers in direct contact with the people who are developing the innovations. Mm, yeah, I, I know um, these companies are not typically the, the, the companies that, well, BASF is a little different, but uh, let's say Gore, where they have sort of a outward brand presence. I mean, they, yes. they lead with the technologies. I guess maybe I've always wondered how they could be so diversified and not be watered out, but maybe the, the brand equity is not as important in the how they interact with the customer base. Well, they do, they do. But you see, a lot of companies have very strong brands, very strong kind of technology capabilities, but it's always the same challenge is to solve a problem for the customer that they, you know, that they need, as as usual, the challenge, as I call it, is to understand your customer. You know, the customer. I mean, I would say there are three three kind of important sources uh, or processes by which you can understand the customer needs. I mean, declared needs, unknown needs, unmet needs, unexpressed needs. One is, of course, to listen what I call to the voice of the customer you know, what the customer is actively expressing in terms of pain points, desires, wishes. But sometimes, you know, the customer is talking to you, but you don't really listen. And there it requires when you are, and this is where it becomes interesting, when you switch 
to the innovating space, your mindset is different. And of course, the tools you would be using are different. But the, the challenge here is to listen with empathy, is not to be in a sell mode, selling your solution, selling your, your technology, but in a, in, a, in a listen mode and listen with empathy. So this is what I call listen to the customer, the voice of the customer. But there's another challenge which uh, you have to you know, work at, at which you work at is what I call listening to the silence of the customer. The things that the customer doesn't tell you and they don't tell you either because they don't know about that need or that problem, or sometimes they might know about it, but they won't tell you because they don't think it's for you to solve that problem. It's not your business. And you can imagine that for Gore, with all the range of technologies and brands and products they have, there might be problems that they didn't think, they didn't envision that this could be a problem they can solve for the customer. So you need to learn how to listen to the silence. I call it the silence of the customer. And I mean, maybe something that, an example that would, uh, is a very cute one, I think, that people can uh, easily understand is the way that uh, Philips, the uh, uh, consumer products uh, Dutch company, developed. It's, uh, it was the first, how they developed the first kettle with a limescale filter. So this was, this was a, a, a project where a new product team at, uh, at Philips was trying to re-energize the UK market for kettles. Some members of the team were sent to live, literally live, with some of the, uh, the customers. So they stayed with some uh, British families for a few days. And immediately, some of them realized about a problem, the problem of the, of the lime scale. They noticed that uh, when people were trying to pour the water in the cup to prepare for tea, there was this little coat of calcium that was kind of floating on top of the water. And... Again, this is a problem they discovered that the customers knew about. The proof was that people were spending quite a bit of time trying to scoop the lime scale with their spoons. <laughs> so it didn't take a long time for, for engineers at, uh, at Philips to design a little lime scale, for, uh, lime scale filter. Uh, you can find it at the, uh, at the mouth of most kettles today, by the way. But this is interesting because this is a problem that many customers knew about, but they wouldn't complain to the kettle manufacturer about it. They would go to the water authorities. So this is what I call the silence of the customer. And unless you close the gap between your would-be innovators and your customers and learn how to listen to the silence of the customer, it's very difficult to develop these, uh, these solutions, even though you might have all the innovation or the, the, the development capabilities internally. You might even have the products. I mean, how difficult it is for Philips to develop a, a filter. And then just, just uh, uh, in passing, uh, Tats, if I may, the third challenge to understand the customer is, is what I call learning from non-customers. Because everybody focused on the customers themselves, I mean, or, or whom they defined as they've their customer, but in fact, there's a whole ecosystem in their business where they could create value for somebody else. And that would entice their customers to, 
you know, engage more with them. So a construction business would be a very good example because you have a whole ecosystem of architects, of builders, of suppliers, of, uh, you know, logistics. And if you think about the whole ecosystem, there are many ways to create an innovation for the, the prescribers, for the influencers, uh, for, I mean, architects are influencers. So, you know, regulators, and they, these are also other sources of uh, uh, interesting innovation. Yeah, that makes sense because you already have uh, access to them. So being it, selling into those or trying things and getting feedback is yes. very much within yes. reach. Yes, yes. Or getting these people to influence. I mean, uh, uh, mm-hmm. again, this is this was uh, this is not contact. This is paint. I give you, I can give you the example that I worked with teams at uh, Axel Nobel, uh, the, the coating and paint company. And when we did a project, again, you had quite a few teams that were focused on the B two C angle, trying to uh, you know find new new paints, new new formulas, new new combinations to, you know, attract uh, the end user. But uh, there was a few teams that focused not on the end user, but they focused on the professional painter. And the question was, how can we find a way to create more value for the painters? So they spent some time trying to understand what was the life of a painter? And they realized that uh, the life of the painter is, of course, about paint, but it is also about managing their own business as a business person. And what could they do to help the painters, you know, manage their business better? And they realized that uh, a huge company like Axel Nobel had IT capabilities that none of the small, you know, uh, family painters could do. So they were able to develop new apps new applications and devices that could help the painters in their daily life. And now, if you have happy painters, professional painters, whose paint are they going to recommend? You can see that uh, in your ecosystem, it's not only about selling new product to your usual customer, but you might have non-customers for whom you can create value, and then they will you know, prescribe your product or or you could actually get them to become customers of your product. And regulators also, uh, some, some, some people in the ecosystem, very often people can forget about. That makes sense. So a source of new innovations, or in that case, an ability to add value, which, uh, you know, um, strengthens retention and, and adds values that way. So uh, very nice. All right. So for a company that let's say maybe they're just executing or doing mostly executing, they want to be more innovative. What would the steps be, you think, of sort of getting to a place where they're more innovative, they have more ideas in the pipeline and stuff like that? What would you recommend? What I recommend, and this is actually the foundation of the the, the framework that is presented in in the book, the Build to Innovate framework, is really that everybody has to make a contribution. Again, uh, I mean, senior leaders have a role to play, middle measures have a role to play, and frontline people have a role to play. Actually, what was really a surprising uh, finding in my in, in in the research for the book is 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 the importance of of middle managers. I found that middle managers were very often the the forgotten heroes of innovation. It's quite interesting because uh, senior leaders 
they're dealing with a, a very volatile and predictable changing competitive environment. So for them, innovation is, is an imperative. Frontline people, they're dealing and they're meeting customers on a daily basis. They see the problems, the, the dissatisfaction, the, the pain points, and, and innovation for them is a no-brainer. And they actually have a lot of ideas. I found that frontline people are full of ideas. The problem is that they don't think that the ideas are wanted, or when they submit the ideas, nothing happens. So the, 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 the ones that are in the middle, the middle managers, they are the ones who are shielded from this external pressure, direct pressure for innovation. And on top of it, they are the ones who are made responsible for execution. So they need support. They need to understand about innovation. So again, a a nice way to explain what people can do is maybe to talk about a a specific example. I I mentioned about it earlier, this company Bayer, the global pharmaceutical and life sciences company based in Germany. So this is, again, just like BSF, this is a company that has a long history of R&D and scientific achievements with new products uh, uh, launched in the market. And they started in 2014. In 2014, they started to create from scratch an innovating engine to leverage the capabilities of the more than 100,000 employees they have in the company. So how did they do this? First, they made the whole board responsible for innovation. The whole board was responsible for innovation. They selected uh, 80 senior managers from across the business units, all business units and global functions. And these 80 senior managers were supporting the board as innovation ambassadors. And then these ambassadors, what they would do, they would spend their time with middle managers. Most of their time, they spent it with middle managers, explaining, advocating, sponsoring, training middle managers innovation. And then they did something really fantastic. They created a support structure for the middle managers. They trained and certified a thousand innovation coaches which were activated all across the organization. Mm -hmm. Remember, middle managers, they're responsible for execution. They don't know much about innovation. They cannot train their people. They don't have the time for that. They don't have the resources. So this central capability, which they can call upon any time an individual in their team or a team has an idea uh, that they want to push on, they can rely on this central capability of innovation coaches. And then that's for the for the frontline people, they created something called WeSolve. WeSolve is a digital platform where any employee at Bayer can post information about a problem they're struggling with internally or with a, an external customer. Now, what is interesting is, is, is about how WeSolve works. More than 40,000 people have already enlisted and participated in, in this platform we solve. I, I actually, I visited the platform once and uh, they showed me that uh, at any given time, they have about 200 challenges posted on the platform and people from around the world, you know, chipping in ideas. But statistic that really surprised me the most is when they showed me that 
two-thirds of the ideas that were proposed as solutions for these challenges, two-thirds of these ideas were coming from a unit or a function different from where the challenge originated. And that shows you that, you know, they are really leveraging the capabilities from across the whole organization. So you can see this is a very systematic way to have senior level people, middle level managers and frontline people participate and contribute to this, what I call the innovating engine. So this is a very systematic approach. This is a, a very concrete structure where they have the executive committee, they have the army of uh, innovation coaches and trainers. They have the frontline people. And at the frontline, they have what they call local coordinators. So when somebody comes up with an idea, which can go into WeSolve, but it can go to a local coordinator, and the local coordinator will channel and we know these ideas to one of the innovation committees. So this is a very well structured, concrete, innovating engine sitting next to the execution engine and working in parallel with everybody participating in both. Very nice. I like it. Great. I'm very, definitely, you know, applicable. I mean, if you, you know, most, some, some of the companies I, I deal with or may not have, you know, 80 managers to train or whatnot, or a tons of coaches, but you can get one coach or five coaches. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So it, you could just sort of uh, modify the numbers that way. When people ask me what, what 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 can people do, and I kind of you know it's like you know what 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 kind of action item you have, independent of the size you have, I would say that, you know, for the senior leaders, it's very simple. Is number one, try to make sure that you put innovation at the center of your strategy, and give permission, give permission to people to innovate. Uh, people under, underestimate this. If you don't give permission to people to innovate, guess what? They won't. They might have a lot of ideas, but they won't bring them about or they won't kind of act upon them. For middle managers, the most important thing is really to create the space and the time for people to, to innovate and, and to give them support, to give them a little bit, a little bit of training. Uh, and the training, you see, it's, 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 it's not that much. It's, it's very simple, intuitive things. It's really about focusing on the customers, I would say. But for the middle managers, it's really about protecting the space, but also protecting people politically. You know, It's an incredible how many ideas people at the front line have. So just to create that time, that space, give them a little bit resources, support, training is a lot. And then for the frontline people, as I said earlier, it's really to make sure that when they are engaging with a customer, they can create a little time, a little space where they switch their mind from execution to innovating and listen to the customer with empathy, go beyond listening to you know solving a problem for them but listen to what other problems they might have uh, so it's the whole thing about the voice of the customer the silence of the customer and look around for non-customers you might have if you solve a problem for a customer which they don't think is your job to do but you do it they will love you so I would say there's, there's action items for everybody in the company, independent of the size. Very, very nice. You covered a lot. Is there anything that uh, you wanted to share that I didn't ask you about? 
Oh, uh, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot there. But uh, since I'm uh, I'm in Japan, I will tell you about one experience I had with really really changed my teaching in innovation. I learned it from a Japanese manager. It's quite simple but powerful. When people come to him. Uh, as a manager, uh, middle manager, when people used to come to him with a new idea, he got into the habit of saying, thank you. Systematically say, thank you, whatever the idea. And then he would ask two questions as a follow-up. But I was really intrigued by the thank you. And and he explained it to me. And this is quite uh, uh, revealing, is that he understood that when, when people are operating in the execution engine, when the execution executing their job, they know that the job is structured. There's a procedure. Very often there are even KPIs. I mean, what they do is observable. Their boss can observe it, right? They know that when they're executing, they're being observed and, 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 and the boss knows if they're doing their job correctly or not. But when you are innovating, this is not observable. There's no way your boss will know whether you have an idea or not. So this Japanese manager understood that when people had an idea, bringing it to him, they would be taking a risk because the boss would never know if they had the idea. But you know, if they express the idea, they could. Um, it could be a bad idea. They could. Uh, they could take a risk uh, in front of the team, so they wouldn't do it. So he understood that when people came to see him with an idea, they were taking a risk. So when they were doing it, they were effectively giving him a gift. And he understood that when I mean, he told me, you know, when people give me a gift, I say thank you. So he created this this, uh, and I'm just explaining how middle managers with simple things can change the culture of a team. So he started to say thank you all the time when people came to his office or in a meeting and and throwing ideas. He says thank you for the idea. And then when people were explaining the idea, instead of you know, pushing them with frameworks and all that, he would ask only two questions Mm -hmm. systematically in the same order. The first question he would say, well, this is a, thank you for the idea. This is interesting idea, but can you explain to me why would the customer like this? You know, in, in economics, we would say, what is the willingness to pay for the customer for this idea? And if they said, I don't know, he would just simply invite them to go and ask the customer. And once they would have done their own homework and come back and say, well, this is why the customer likes it, then he would ask his second question, which is, what would be the benefit to us? You know, how would it reduce our cost or how would it kind of, you know, help us raise the price or what would be the benefit to us? And he would systematically ask these questions. And then after a few months, he told me, he started to have people come to see him and say, boss, I have a new idea. And of course, he would say, thank you. And then they would continue by saying, and you know, boss, the value for the customer is this, this, and that, and the value for us. So he had changed the culture. He had you know, created a mental discipline where his own team knew how to judge their own ideas. And this is very simple. It's just by saying thank you and asking two questions. That's very powerful. I like that. Well, Ben... Thank you so much. Obviously, you're a wealth of information. I appreciate you presenting in such oh, a straightforward a and easy to understand way. Thank you. It's so fun. So so much fun. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Specify Growth Podcast today. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Tats Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.